God, once again, you deserve it all. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to seek and save the lost, for coming to take our place, to take upon our punishment that we deserve. God, help us to walk in the same power that rose you from the grave, Jesus. Help us to focus on your word and you alone this morning. Thank you, Matt, and the worship team. Thank y'all for leading us this morning. Do appreciate y'all very much. What a beautiful promise that is that day and night, night and day, let incense arise. And uh, if you're not familiar, that is taken from the passage in Revelation 4, uh, where the elders are before the throne of God and the incense are their prayers. And uh, one day we're going to see where those, that bowl of prayers of incense is going to be poured out upon the earth in God's judgment. And the martyrs there, that their cries for uh, retribution, their cries to be avenged, will be silent because Jesus is worthy of that praise and Jesus will fulfill his promises. And so what a wonderful promise we just got to sing about. So Matt and the worship team, thank you all so much for that. As always, I want to say a big thanks to Pastor Lee. I believe they're getting back tonight from Uganda. And so be praying for them for safe travel. So uh, Lee, if you catch this online sometime, uh, thank you so much for allowing me to have this opportunity to preach. He asked me a few Monday or Mondays ago during staff meeting in the youth building. He came up, he just said, you preach on February 20th? And I said, let's go! And he looked at me and he said, go where? So anyway, true story. So I didn't judge him then, but I am judging him now. So, uh, But this morning we're going to go to Colossians chapter 3. I encourage you to go to Colossians chapter 3. And when you find that, I'd like to ask if you would stand out of the reverence and readings God's word this morning. So Colossians chapter 3, and when you find it, let's stand together as we get to read God's word together. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming." And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. For here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complained against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for this morning. I pray through this you will receive much glory. Thank you for this time of worship that we had as we got to, uh, in our response towards you, sing with thankfulness in our hearts. Thank you so much, God, for this, the beautiful truths that are found in your scripture that we even sang about this morning. I pray, God, that through the preaching of your word this morning that hearts are transformed. God, that we would live a life that would honor and please you. God, be with our congregation as, Lord, every single day we try our best to live for you. And I pray that through your Holy Spirit you would give us strength to put off these things that are of our old self. God, give us strength to live for you, to honor you, to be, uh, to walk in obedience to you. Thank you again for loving us. Thank you for Jesus Christ, for dying on the cross for our sins and from rising from the dead. You alone are God, and we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a little history behind the book of Colossians before we begin to break down these passages uh, this particular epistle or letter, and here a small letter, was written by the Apostle Paul, and most of you probably already know that. Now, Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison. Uh, this was confirmed in Colossians chapter 4, verse 8. We do see Paul mentioning that, and he was most likely in Rome during that time. And Paul writes this letter due to a report that he receives while he was in prison from a man named Epaphras, and we see this in Colossians 1 as well as Colossians 4. Now, Epaphras was a companion of Paul and was a minister there in Colossae. So Paul, him, he himself did not help start this church, nor did he really even have a relationship with this church, with this particular body. Uh, he just knew Epaphras. And Epaphras gives Paul this report that this church in Colossae, that they have stayed faithful amongst all the pressure that was happening within that city, within their community and their culture. They were being pressured by the Jewish community, these new Christians were being pressured by the Jewish community uh, with a works-based theology in keeping the Old Testament law. That they had to keep everything that was in the Old command, or in the Old Testament, all the, the commandments, in order to be saved. And that was very common with a lot of those churches there in Asia Minor at the time. And they were also resisting this idea that we see in chapter 2 of this mystical polytheism. And what I mean by that, by mystical uh, or mysticism, this belief that makes you extra holy or that you know God more than anybody else through religious practices, and it makes you more holy, it makes you more supernatural, and even some cases, and polytheism is the worship of more than just one God. So they were okay with saying, okay, yeah, Jesus sounds good, just throw him in the mix, he's a deity, yeah, you can add him to it. And so they were being pressured by all this, this culture that is happening there within their community. And Paul encourages these Christians to not compromise, but to remain faithful to Christ and the work that he does in the life of all believers through the Holy Spirit. And that was his encouragement to him in this letter. And Paul, and now in chapter 3, gives a beautiful description of what that looks like for the believer, that sinful human beings can be joined together with God through the resurrection of Christ and the Holy Spirit produces fruit in the believer's life. Now I want to reread verses 1 through 4 again. Paul says, If you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now in this statement that Paul says in verse 1, since you have been raised with Christ. This is actually a callback to what Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 12 when Paul gives them the illustration of baptism, the picture of baptism, when he says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so they already have a picture of what Paul means, but being raised to life. The basis upon Paul's practical instruction for Christians that's found here in chapter 3 it all begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and who also has raised us from the dead. Now, obviously, this is not talking about physical resurrection for us. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead physically, bodily, but we have been raised from the dead as Christians spiritually. And I also want to read these words to you from Paul to another church that he writes to in Ephesus. This is Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 5, and Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, that Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of the disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of God's wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses of sin, trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And so Paul helps us to understand that before Christ, our condition is that we were dead. And Paul actually uses the illustration of physical death. Listen, when you're dead, there's nothing you can do. You can't breathe, you can't talk, you can't move, you're dead. And Paul gives us the same illustration that spiritually we were dead, there was nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And our condition is that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And because of that, our position is that we were by nature, our own very nature, children of God's wrath. And Paul says that was our position in Christ, that we were children, or at that time, we were children of God's wrath, and our condition is that we were dead. And then, of course, he says, but God, being rich in mercy with the great love that he loved us, made us alive with Christ. When we heard that gospel message that Jesus died for our sin and rose from the dead, and when we believe that, the Bible says that we have been raised to new life in Christ. So our position of being a child of wrath and condition of being dead has now changed to a condition of now being made alive in the position, or excuse me, yes, the position of being a child of the Most High God. And he says here that in everything we do out of our obedience is based upon the fact that we have been raised to new life with Christ. And it's because we have been raised with Christ, we seek the things of Christ. And it is only because we have been raised with Christ that we are able to seek the things of Christ. As Paul says here, where Christ is seated. 
the things that are above. Now, Paul is not necessarily talking about, okay, you become a Christian, you live your life, you die, you go to heaven. This is not what he's talking about here. Rather, in our new humanity, we have set our minds upon the place where Christ reigns in heaven at the right hand of God. And in this new life that we live today, we await our Savior's return. And when Christ returns, he will transform these earthly bodies, whether we're alive or in the grave, and he will also transform this earth to the new heaven, to the new earth. What a beautiful promise we see. And verse 4 helps us understand this in context when he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears... See, that's a very important uh, under, uh, something that we need to understand here. Because when we see this, when Christ, who is your life, when he appears, the word that Paul uses here for life is soteria, which actually means salvation. And if you know anything about uh, biblical studies, there is the study or the doctrine of salvation, soteriology. And this is where we get this. Because when Christ, who is our life, when Christ, who is our salvation, when he appears we will also appear with him in glory. That is the hope. That is the transformation that we see. Now, Paul wants us to understand something here, that these earthly bodies, this is not the answer. These, these earthly bodies are problematic for us. And Paul was also kind of explaining this in to, an to another church in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says this, O oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? See, what was happening there in Galatia, these new Christians, they were being, uh, just as these believers in Colossians, they were being uh, persuaded to, be pu to pull back to their old ways, to be pulled back to their old teachings. And there was a group named the Judaizers who were doing this to these new believers in Galatia. And Judaizers were a sect of Jewish believers that were saying, okay, Jesus sounds good, but you need to go back to the Old Testament law. And for them, it was the Levitical law. And so when Paul says, oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? They were going back to the, the Levitical laws. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? That's hearing the gospel. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So in other words, Paul is asking them, are we saved or being kept saved by just keeping these Old Testament laws, by doing the things that are right? And the answer is no, because we are saved by God's grace grace through faith by our belief when we hear the gospel, which again is the good news that Jesus is the son of God who came from heaven to earth, who died, a per he was perfect, died for our sins and was risen from the dead. And when we believe that we have now been raised to new life in Christ. When Christ, who is our salvation returns, we will be transformed into our heavenly bodies. And you see, this is actually a picture that Paul gives for us for the process or for the act of justification. 
That Paul says here, when Christ has saved you, you have been justified. That word justified uh, is actually a legal term. It means to be made right. And in our standing with God, once we believe this gospel, you have been made right in the sight of God. So when he appears, because we have been made right, we will also appear with him in glory. And you see, the gospel message that transforms our lives, that one day will transform our earthly bodies to our heavenly bodies and will transform this sinful earth into the new heaven, the new earth, all that together is the true hope of glory. Now moving on to verse five, Paul says here, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Sorry, I lost my spot. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after, its, after the image of its creator. For here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now we see this here is actually the process of sanctification. Now I've already used the word justification, God making us right, but now here in sanctification, this is the process of us on this earth as children of God, he is making us holy. He is making us into the image of our creator. Now, not obviously physically, we all look different, but in our fruit, what we produce as Christians, God is sanctifying us. He is making us holy. Now, if we understand that we are saved by grace through faith, everything that Paul lists here about getting rid of all of our old humanity and putting on this new humanity, if we think that's what saves us, and we don't understand the gospel because that is a works-based theology. In other words, you're saved by the good things you do. You're saved by the fruit, the fruit that you produce. So Paul puts it as this, putting to death all these things that are about the flesh, and he gives us a list here, sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, angry, or anger, wrath, lying to each other, obscene talk. Listen, I'm guilty of all that. We are all guilty of all that. And he says, putting on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of its creator. And for us today, the knowledge of the creator is found in scripture. All of this together is not salvation, but this is the evidence of our salvation. This is how we know that we are saved. And I want to go ahead and say this. I don't have this in my notes, so I might go off tangent here, but sanctification is a lifelong process. Please understand this. There are a lot of Mickey Mouse preachers out there today. I don't know why I said Mickey Mouse, forgive me. But there are a lot of preachers out there today who want you to think that it's at the snap of a finger, things are gonna change. Sanctification is a lifelong process. We are going to struggle with sin in these bodies. Can we repent of sin? Absolutely, we can. But to say that we don't sin, 1 John says that we have made God out to be a liar and the truth is not in us. So know this, if you're struggling with certain things in this life, it's because you're human. 
We're not going to be perfect in this particular life here. We're going to struggle for the rest of our life. But what we have to understand is that hope is not found in this current life, but it is found in the life that will come. Think about what the writer of, he, uh, of Hebrews says in chapter 11 when he talks about the father of our faith, Abraham. It says when he promised him an inheritance, he said he never saw that inheritance because that inheritance was not built by hands, but it was for a kingdom that was built by God the creator. What is that talking about? That's talking about our future hope, the new heaven and the new earth. But when we realize the grace that God has extended to us through salvation and the mercy that he has granted us for the forgiveness of our sins, through that understanding of God's love, which we find in the sacred scriptures today, it is our pleasure to walk in obedience to God's law as he works out the process of our sanctification. And that is a lifelong process. And then in verse 11, we see a beautiful picture of how this gospel message has the power to transform and is continually transforming lives today. And Paul says here, for here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, when it comes to Christ, there are no status distinctions among the people of God. No one, not anyone in this room, has a special claim upon God, nor does God treat any of us with less dignity than any other. So in this list that Paul gives in verse 11, in Colossae, they had both Jews and Greeks. And within that community, the Jews felt superior uh, in their religious standings because they were called the circumcised, and the Messiah would come from their religion. And still today, modern Jews do not believe that the Messiah has come, but that one day he will come as a conquering king. And the Greeks or Gentiles here, they were considered unsophisticated in their religious beliefs because they were known as the uncircumcised, and they were labeled as children without a promise or children without the promise of the Messiah. Because the Jews believed, according to the Old Testament, that we're going to be the only ones that are saved. But we know that Paul says here that the gospel reaches even to the Gentiles. And then Paul mentions barbarians and Scythians. And this is kind of interesting. Because when Paul says barbarian, he's not necessarily meaning people who are barbaric in their nature, people who are destructive, anything like that. But a lot of Greeks at this time actually considered people within their communities who did not speak Koine Greek, they considered them barbaric. And the Greeks considered the Scythians the most barbaric of them all. The Scythians were a people group who lived on the north side of the Black Sea. Uh, some historians believe that they also lived near, on the north side of the Caspian Sea as well. But the Scythians, to the Greeks, were considered violent, uneducated, and uncivilized. And when Paul says also here, for the slave, the word he uses there is dulios, meaning bondservant or bond slave. And a bond servant was someone who had an obligation to another individual, even to a family. And they had to work for that person to, in obligation to pay off their debt with their times of service. And they were considered at that time some of the most unwealthy people. So Paul in this list, he shows that the gospel of Jesus Christ 
breaks down every man-made wall, defeats any prejudice or discrimination against any other races or culture because Jesus, who is all and in all, binds us all together as Christians as one body. And he sanctifies us through his Holy Spirit. Now, this is not Paul giving a universalist statement saying that Christ is in every single person of this world, uh, that every single person in this world is going to be saved. No, this is, he's talking about the united body here of believers, that Christ through his Holy Spirit indwells within us. And that understanding helps us uh, to um, understand this next section here, starting in verse 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, God has justified us through our faith in Christ, and he is currently sanctifying us in our faith with Christ, and through that, it produces much fruit. And because of that, it leads to the worship of God. Now, I'll personally consider this, what we just read, verses 12 through 15, kind of a theological cross-reference of what we see in Galatians chapter 5, and this probably sounds familiar to you, starting in verse 22. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he says, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And when we think about this list that Paul gives here in Colossians 3, it matches up with what Paul says in Colossians 5, the chapter known about the fruit that the Spirit produces in all believers. But I also want to focus on verse 13 here. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint, even the smallest thing, against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has also forgiven you, you also must forgive. We as Christians are to forgive at the same extent that we have been forgiven. And I'll ask you this question. What have we been forgiven of? Everything. Every sin that we have committed towards a holy God because what Christ did on the cross for us, we've been forgiven of everything. And as Christians, we don't have an excuse to not forgive. And you might be thinking, well, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what so-and-so has done to me. No, I don't. I don't personally know all that, but I do know what we've done to Jesus. I do know what we've done to God. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how he demonstrated his love. And as his dearly loved children, we too are to forgive. And in verse 16, we see the culmination of all this together. 
as he says, let the word of Christ dwell with you and you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul brings us back to the importance of Scripture. Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. You see, Scripture helps us to properly teach and admonish one another. To admonish means to firmly warn. So Scripture also produces in us, when we understand the very nature of God and the love he has for us, it produces praise within our life and praise unto God. You see, when we focus upon God's word, we can help train ourselves and train our brothers and sisters to righteousness, and through that, we worship God together. And why do we do all that? It's because we're thankful. We're thankful for what Christ has done in our life. We're thankful for Christ and who he is. And here in this verse, Paul actually gives us a variety of music in our response towards God. Now, uh, a lot of people, and I've read some commentaries on this, think that Paul is just making one big clump together and say this is a response. But these three things actually mean three different things, as he says, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The psalms are actually referring to the scriptures. And see, back in the ancient New Testament church and within the temples of the Old Testament, they would make tunes to the psalms. That's what they would do. They would sing and make music to the psalms. And I want to read one of these psalms for you, and this is one that they would put a tune of music to. Psalm 150, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the trumpet sound. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with the tambourine and dance. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And they would put a tune to these as they would sing these aloud. And the word hymn simply means this, song of praise. That's what a hymn is. It's not a distinct, certain sound of music that was written two, three hundred years ago. No, it's just a song of praise that we, yes, did write two, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred years ago within the church, but we're still doing it today. And throughout the church history, the New Testament church, members would get together and still today get together and they would write deep truths that are found within Scripture while adding a common tune uh, to it to help us understand how we can sing together in church just like what we did today. Even though some of them were more new songs, they're still considered hymns. Why? Because they're a song of praise. Now, when I was writing uh, this out, I'm sure... Uh, some of you are probably thinking, yes, I can remember some of my favorite hymns growing up. I have a favorite hymn today. I don't know why this one came to my mind, but this was the one that came to my mind when I started thinking about a hymn that I used to sing. And it says, I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. And I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longing for nothing else will do. And the chorus says, I love to tell the story. It will be my theme and glory to tell that old, old story of Jesus and his love. And I even thought about the one we sang this morning as we opened up the service. When you called my name, I ran out of that grave because of what we just read here in, uh, what was it, verse 1, if you have been raised with Christ. And those are hymns that Paul is talking about. And when he says spiritual songs, this most likely represents a spontaneous response in singing 
whether it be through joy or even through trial, through sorrow, these are spontaneous acts of worship that we have according based, based upon God's word. Now, I think a great example of this from two ladies, one by the name of Phoebe Knapp, you may have never heard of her, uh, and another one by the name of Fanny J. Crosby. That name might sound a little bit more familiar. Now, it was said about Fanny J. Crosby that she wrote over 8,000 hymns for the New Testament church. Think about that, 8,000 hymns. Man, I, I can't even you know write down eight words sometimes, but 8,000 hymns for the church. Now, it was said about her, and I, and I saw this in a book, I do read, uh, Fanny Crosby, the hymn writer, and it was said about her that she would hear a tune and all of a sudden she would start singing because she was joyful. Now, if you didn't know this about Fanny Crosby, she was actually blind. And she wrote over 8,000 hymns for the church. And it said that she was one of the most joyful women you could be around. In 1873, while Fanny Crosby was at the home of this lady, Phoebe Knapp, she was a wealthy philanthropist at that time. And she was also a classically trained musician. While they were at her house, Phoebe Knapp gets on the piano and begins to play this waltz number. Do y'all know what a waltz is? Hopefully, anybody want to do a waltz for us? No, Sharon, Bill Pate, you don't want? Okay, all right. So, uh, but anyways, that would be hysterical if y'all just got up and danced right now. Please don't, no. <laughs> but anyway, she began, this Phoebe Knapp began to play a waltz number on the piano. And all of a sudden, Fanny Crosby just yells out and says, Oh, yes, I hear blessed assurance Jesus is mine, just says that out loud, and just began to sing about the joy she had in Christ. And through that spontaneous act, that spontaneous moment of worship, a great hymn was born for the church. Now, a few Sundays back, um, Matt was needing some people to sing in the choir, and we were standing kind of in this area, and Matt's like, man, we're going to be low in the choir today. And I look out, and I see Bryce DeGear sitting where his parents are right now. And I see Bryce. is like, hey, man, come up here. Come sing with us. And he came up, and I said, sorry to put you on the spot. And he said, no, it's okay. I I'm just thankful to sing, man. And I'm like, what a good attitude we should have. Now, I'm not going to go as far to say that if you're not singing in church that you have a bad attitude or you're not thankful. Wink, wink. But no, I'm, I'm teasing. But we, as a church... We as, a, as believers, we have the command in Scripture that we are to sing to God. That's a command in Scripture. But even more than that, we have a command to be thankful. In verse 17, Paul says this, Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We do what we do, because we're thankful. Whether if it's we're serving in the kids' ministry, we're serving in the youth ministry, in an adult ministry, men's ministry, women's ministry, the worship team, the AV team, sheepdogs, maybe you're a church elder, maybe you're a church trustee, we do these things not out of chore, not out of compulsion. We do it because we are thankful for Jesus Christ. That's why we serve. Whatever we do, in word or deed, we do it because we are thankful. And even just in our own personal lives, we really have a lot to be thankful for. We really do. And yes, life is tough. Life gets us down in many different ways. But to think that we were once, by our human nature, an object of God's wrath. We were once 
enemies of God, yet because of his great love for us and the mercy that he has extended to us, Jesus made us alive. Changing our condition of being dead in our sin to being made alive in Christ and changing the position of being a child of wrath of now being a child of the Most High God. That's what Christ has done in the life of the believer. What a Savior we have. What a Savior Jesus Christ is. This morning, I would just encourage you, if you have never placed your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you can do that this very morning. The Bible teaches us that we are all sinners. We have fallen short of God's standard of perfection. We don't meet it. There's no way we can in this flesh. And we have all sinned against a holy God. And because of we've sinned against a God, there is a penalty, and that penalty is death. That is eternal separation from God. But we see in, in the Scripture that even though there is death for the penalty of sin, there's still a promise that if we believe in Jesus Christ that he died for that sin and he rose from the dead, we now have eternal life. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we are sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus was our sin substitute upon the cross, taking your sin, my sin, placing it upon his shoulders, and he physically died, and on the third day he rose from the dead, proving to this world that he is God, and our sin is forgiven. And when Christ, our salvation, our life, when he appears, we too, as his people, will appear with him in glory. What a promise, what a Savior we have. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you so much, God, that through Christ, we have been raised from the dead. God, there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. There is nothing we could do to earn your favor. It is only through Christ and his death and resurrection. God, I pray that as your children, as your followers, Lord, that we would do our best Yes, to put to death these things in this life. God, as you are molding us and you are shaping us, I pray, God, as we put those things to death, and God, we put on this new humanity that you have provided for us, may you receive much glory and honor and praise through that. God, yes, we're going to struggle in this life with sin. We're going to struggle in this life with heartache. God, this world today is not our answer. We're looking for that new world, that new hope, the new Jerusalem, Lord, that comes from heaven. And Jesus, help us to understand that the promise that you made for us here in this life, we ne may never see it in our day, but God, you remain faithful, you will not break your promise, and one day we will get to see it. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us, Lord, not to trust our feelings, our desires. Help us to trust in what your word has told us about your faithfulness. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that does not know Christ as their Savior, I pray, Lord, today that they would nail that down and understand that you are the Savior of this world and the forgiver of our sin. So, Lord, I pray that someone would put their faith in Christ today, that you would save lives today. I pray for us as believers, God, that we continue to be transformed into the image of your Son. And, God, as we leave this place today, I pray that we would give you much glory with our lives. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.